HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the culinary wonders of urban New Jersey with a tour through Newark. We speak to Frank Mentesana at Phillips Academy Public Charter School. This idea of family style and made from scratch lunches continues to be a bit of an anomaly in the city. We also hear from Gil Speyer from All Points West Distillery. Newark used to have an incredibly rich beverage alcohol history. And we'll tour Aero Farms, the world's largest indoor vertical farm. We're growing using 390 times more productivity than field farming and 95% less water. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network to be amazed at the wonders of Newark. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liot, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today is part two of our series on genetic engineering with Greg Jaffe, director of the Project on Biotechnology at the Center for Science in the Public Interest. And today, we're going to be talking all about the pros and cons of using this technology. This is an issue that, and I've said it again and again, like this issue has been one that I feel like the food advocacy community just like really took a hold of in terms of the desire to see this disclosure law passed. And I don't know if that's like born out of some um, misunderstandings, like in general or among the public, maybe it's just, I'm, I'm just so fascinated. And I think that one of the things I really want to do today is to just put it all out there. Like, let's talk about the facts, right? What is, what is this technology? How has it been used? And let's now address some of the controversies, um, surrounding this issue, right? So like, I kind of want to unpack, um, I guess in only sound bites, that's all we can do for today, but like kind of pro cons, right? Like how are some ways let's, and let's start with the cons. How, like the, how are some ways that this technology has been used um, that have, you know, been, that has been harmful, for instance, like in your experience, have you, do you think that it has led to the creation of mass resistance amongst pests? Let's start there. 
Right. So I think one of the biggest impacts of genetically engineered crops has been um, that while they could be used sustainably, they haven't been used sustainably. And so we've seen the development of resistant insects and resistant pests. So that is not a new risk. We have resistant insects and pests. We've reduced insects and weeds. Resistant insects and weeds um, that exist for non-genetically engineered crops and non-genetically engineered pesticide systems. But in you know one of the reasons, so you know, so for example, as I mentioned earlier, the BT crops mm-hmm. they were developed to eliminate the use of synthetic uh, pesticides, and for many years they did that. They did reduce significantly the amount of synthetic chemical pesticides that were being used by farmers, which helps non-targets, meaning beneficial insects that we want that might be killed by those insecticides. Uh, and, or, you know, it's healthier for farmers. But if we don't use those correctly, and many farmers didn't use them correctly in an integrated way with other pest methods, integrated pest management, we call it, then the pests in case the insects started developing resistance to these genetically engineered crops. And so now farmers have to go back and start spraying again. So on the one hand, well, they're doing just what they did before, but to the extent that the genetic engineered crops were a benefit to farmers and to the environment, we start losing that benefit. And so we've seen the development of glyphosate-resistant weeds and Bt-resistant pests um, because farmers, you know, in their zeal to adopt these, mm-hmm. um, utilize them and overutilize them in an unsustainable fashion. So I think that's been one of the biggest impacts that has I've... been that we now have, uh, you know, 14 weed species that are resistant to glyphosate that didn't exist 20 years ago before we had glyphosate-tolerant crops. That seems like a real bummer. (laughs) That's my um, official diagnosis. No, what about the, I mean, I think that there is also the argument that um, I would say certainly Monsanto has used in the past that this is actually uh, environmentally friendly technology because it requires, um, where, you know, it, it, it requires less input in terms of like less pesticides, less herbicides to be sprayed. But I don't know if that's necessarily true. It sounds like um, it sounds like the opposite. So what I can say is, and this is not a very, may not be a, a satisfying answer to very many people, is you really have to, so this technology, just like any other technology, it's how you apply it. Mm-hmm. And you have to look at that on a case-by-case basis. And so there's a lot of discussion in the media and among the GMO debate about, well, GMOs increase pesticide use. Oh, GMOs reduce pesticide use. Yeah. And the reality is you can't generalize like that. You have to look at a specific example and a specific crop and trait and receiving environment and decide, you know, well, what was the purpose of this trait? So the herbicide-tolerant crops, their goal wasn't to reduce herbicide use. It was to simplify herbicide use. And it allowed you to spray glyphosate over the top of the crop. So we wouldn't expect glyphosate to reduce uh, glyphosate used to re- 
reduce. In fact, we'd expect it to increase as farmers adopted those glyphosate-tolerant seeds. For those BT corn and cotton that I talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. there we would expect, and we did see, reductions in insecticides being used. So so that's why I say you have to look at this on a case-by-case, and you can't compare the insecticides that were decreased with the herbicides that were increased. You know, it's like apples and oranges. Right. (laughs) So... So the reality is, is that it's more complicated. You know, it's complicated, <laughs> yeah, and it really depends on the particular trait and the crop and the receiving environment and and how it's being utilized and what it was meant for to know what impact it had. So the non-browning apple, the goal there is to have an apple that doesn't brown when you cut it. Mm-hmm. There's no impact on pesticide use one way or the other. Right, right. So you know that one has not. You know that was not meant <laughs> as a pesticide increasing or reducing yeah, uh, crop, like and therefore, you know, we, it would be wrong to p- put that in. That has a whole different purpose. Um, and we could argue whether that was a good purpose or a bad purpose and a useful thing, and whether that, you know, leads to food waste, reduces, reduces right. food waste, or increases children who want to eat apples, and, you know, there are arguments made on both sides around that. But it's a different, you have to, that's why you have to look at each one case by case. What about the effects? Do you think that fundamentally this technology reduces biodiversity? I mean, because that's one of the things I hear. Right. So I don't think it fundamentally, fundamentally reduces biodiversity. Our agricultural system fundamentally reduces biodiversity. Right. But as I mentioned earlier, and that would happen independent of whether we had genetically engineered crops. Huh. So, you know, the reality is that most of the calories that humans uh, intake worldwide comes from, I, I want to say this, and I shouldn't be quoted on this because I'm not an expert in this, but from a dozen or so crops. Okay. So rice and wheat and soybeans and corn and... A lot know, of commodity crops, yeah. Those big crops are where most of our calories come from. And, you know, no matter, no matter how much we'd like um, people to eat quinoa <laughs> yeah. or bulgur, or lettuce, yeah. Um, <laughs> they're not doing it yet. And so... But, you know, rice is not genetically engineered and wheat is not genetically engineered. Corn and soybeans are. But we don't see, you know, we still see people eating primarily rice. People aren't switching from rice to corn. Yeah. Because of the fact that they're genetically engineered. Right. Um, so, you know, the reality is, is that our food supply, you know, we have a great diversity of potentially edible crops but that our food supply, independent of being genetically engineered, has moved to a much smaller number of those crops for most of the calories that humans intake. What about the risk? This is the one thing that I, um, that, you know, when I read about, I, it kind of freaked me out, basically. But, um, you know, and there have been cases where organic farmers have been in like legal cases, right? Um, that kind of pit organic farmers against Monsanto and Monsanto. I don't know if they sue the organic uh, farmers, but basically like patent infringement. And if they're, and also the possibility for organic farmers and their fields to be contaminated by like Monsanto crops or seeds. So there's two different issues Right, there. two, I just so, rolled them so, really so confusing. So our too. patent system <laughs> does allow the genes that are being introduced into these crops to be patented. Mm-hmm. And a patent means that it's a, the government gives you an exclusive limited license. So for 20 years, you have an exclusive license to that product. 
Um, and we do this for drugs and lots of other things because we want to spark innovation. We want people to invest in a drug, and they know it costs a lot of money to invest. And if we don't give them an exclusive license for a certain period of time, they're not going to invest in those type of things. So we have people, and then we also want inventions to be made public, so people can then build on inventions. So that's the purpose of the mm-hmm. intellectual property and patenting system. So when you patent something, then you have you 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 control it for that period of time. And what Monsanto did is says, okay, well, you know, now when farmers want to grow these seeds, they purchase a license. When they buy those seeds, they purchase a license to use those seeds once. Um, and then if they want to use them again, they've got to buy the license again or buy the seeds again. And so... Um, so they can't save them. They can't save them. Yeah. And if they do save them, then they're violating the patent, and right. Monsanto can sue them yeah. to get that. So in some instances, farmers have been sued by Monsanto, not necessarily organic farmers, they could be traditional or conventional farmers, or GM farmers who have, who, have, who have utilized those crops without getting a proper license. And the best way I can compare, you know, to explain this to somebody who's not a patent lawyer or something like that is, you know, for everybody out there, probably most people have purchased a song on iTunes, mm-hmm. and when you buy that song for 99 cents, you're buying a license, you're buying one copy of that song. And if you give it to every other member of your family, you violated. Like my Netflix uh, subscription, which you got. <laughs> now iTunes or that singer come, could come after you. Yeah. But they probably won't. But you you didn't buy a right to give it to everybody else. You bought a right to have it yourself. And similarly, everybody who has a computer, um, many of people have Microsoft Office. When you first download that, you saw you know you, you paid one hundred twenty five dollars for that. You, there's all these things that you have to click through and sign. Those are saying that you have agreed to one or two or three licenses. You only can use that on one computer or two computers or three computers. You can't give that to your neighbors or your yeah. neighbor's kids. Yeah. You know, If you did, you violated their, their intellectual property, and they could sue you for it. Okay. So, so we may not like what Monsanto did, but that is no different than what the music industry does or the computer you know, software industry or anybody else who wants to protect their intellectual property. Um, with that in mind, you know, there's there's optics and whether, you know, Monsanto should go after small-scale farmers who are saving those seeds, that's a different question. Yeah. But from a legal point of view, um, they have a right to, to go after anybody who doesn't have a license that they should have had. So that's a different question than the question you asked about contamination. Uh, uh, what we call... So some people call it contamination, other people call it uh, advantage, inadvertent <laughs> adventitious, adventitious presence. <laughs> and that is I wonder that, who I wonder who uh, who's associated with either of those two terms. That's right. <laughs> well, I'll leave that up to everybody's imagination. Marketing. Um, but what ends up happening is so organic. Um, so if you want to have a farm in the United States that's organic, you have to follow the organic standards, which is a law and regulations you know enforced by USDA. Mm-hmm. And under those law and regulations, biotech or genetic engineering is an excluded method. So you're not allowed to, if you're an organic farmer that's certified, you can't grow genetically engineered seeds in your farm. Okay, and if you do, then you lose your certification, Mm -hmm. and you can't call that crop organic. So, um, So farmers, organic farmers, don't want pollen or anything coming into their field from a neighbor's field that might be biotech. Right. That makes sense. Because it might contaminate 
or as I said, either contaminate or be advantageous, advantageous <laughs> presence um, of something that they don't want there. Um, now, the organic standards actually doesn't disqualify a farmer if it gets there inadvertently. Okay. Okay. It's pretty hard But to the tell. marketplace might disqualify them. So Whole Foods or an organic farm market might say, well, we want to test, and if you have any, any even a small level of biotech inadvertently mm-hmm. in, your, in, in the crop that you're selling to us, we're not going to accept it because our market standard is different. Than our than the than the regulatory standard necessarily right so 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 that's where this issue arises and it arises in crops that are generally open pollinating or crops where uh, pollen can flow from one field to the next so soybeans and that's why I always say case by case is also the important thing here because the biology of the crop matters so if you're growing genetic engineered soybeans in one field and a farmer, your neighboring farmer's organic and growing uh, non-genetic engineered soybeans, soybeans are self-pollinating and the soybean pollen doesn't go very far at all, I mean a few feet. And so the likelihood of getting any contamination or inadvertent adventitious presence is very, 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 very small. Right. On the other hand, corn or canola are open pollinating crops and their pollen can flow, you know, a, a good distance. And so if you are a corn farmer, genetic engineer corn farmer and an organic farmer next door, there you could see uh, pollen flowing and some of that crop now having genetic material in it. So again, it's one of these things you've got to look at case by case. Right. Um, but you're never going to have corn pollen contaminating or inadvertently in a lettuce field because you know, well, yeah. <laughs> corn and lettuce don't sexually reproduce. Right. So, so you're fine. So this is only an issue for the 10 crops that exist and only um, a for the ones where there's uh, where pollen or um, where there's likelihood of, se- of inadvertent sexual reproduction. Have there ever been a, has there ever been a case where Monsanto sued like a small farm if, uh, you know, where like the seeds accidentally blew onto the, the field and then, you know, crops started to grow, but it was an accident and Monsanto sued them anyways? I thought that that was a court case. I am not aware of any that have done that. There was a court case in, in Perry Schmeiser case in Canada where the where 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 Perry Schmeiser's are claimed that that that's what happened. He inadvertently had uh, the GM trait in his seeds okay. and didn't know about it and didn't take advantage of it. Yeah. But the court's findings that case said that he was lying. Hmm. Okay. The amount of of uh, contamination or inadvertent presence or whatever you want to call it in that case was so high that it couldn't have been done through. Just pollen coming across. Yeah. Okay. It had to be. It had to have been intentional in some way. So, um, so you know, I, I don't follow the Monsanto litigations that they've done over the years related to this, so I can't really answer that question. Right. Right. But this could be an example of like a like a wives' tale or whatever. Maybe is that what it is? I think in the terms of the yeah. Perry Smizer case. Well, that the was court real. Said yeah. Ruled that uh, that this was not inadvertent that this was intentional. Not um, yet. And I didn't mean a wise, I mean, I mean like something that is, um, I don't know, maybe blown out of proportion or something, I mean, right. like a misunderstanding right. maybe. Right, right, um, And I, you know, again, you know, has, I, I'm not going to, you know, 
can't comment I don't but know like broadly about the yeah Monsanto litigation do they have a right to sue people who are using their legally yes uh, intellectual property without a license yes yes do they always pick the right cases to do that in and are Maybe they not, but you knows? know may or may not be doing that yeah but that's a the, the, those are two different issues yes that that I completely tangled so, up and you expertly managed to <laughs> right. so untangle I, I thank you you know I'm not at all endorsing what they did no but no. I am saying that they had a right to do it yeah no that's important I mean that is that's the law right and that's um, right. you have to keep that in mind okay Just so like I'm hoping you know so Microsoft doesn't come <laughs> after every single person who's you know shared yeah. license, but you know, or Netflix now built built or in Hulu. all kinds of different mechanisms to yes. prevent you from doing that. <laughs> yes. Okay, we're going to take a really quick commercial break uh, to hear a word from our sponsors, but don't go anywhere. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. Hi, my name is Sam Ben Ruby, and I'm the host of The Great Nation on Heritage Radio Network. With this show, we bring wine to the people. Each week, we bring the best guests in wine on, taste different wines on air, and invite our listeners to taste with us. You'll find our approach to wine decidedly unsnobby. You can find The Grape Nation wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. What about, what about some ways that it has been has been and can continue to be used for good. So you mentioned before about an apple that doesn't brown or brown as quickly and how this could be, you know, could be really huge for preventing food waste. And I mean, I am imagining there are lots of other kind of um, opportunities for this sort of thing to happen. Right. So I think, you know, you know, so this technology is worldwide. And so, you know, in the United States, it's primarily been used to, um, you know, for far, for traits that that help farmers, mm-hmm. okay, and some of those traits have environmental impacts, also positive environmental impacts on a case by case basis. Uh, they haven't really produced a lot that's you know that has benefits to consumers. You know, the consumer end, you're not getting a sweeter tasting tomato or more nutritious you know cantaloupe because of genetic engineering although those might come in the future Mm -hmm. but i think you know one of the places that these crops are also being developed is in developing countries and there you know the consumer and the farmer are really the same and many of those are subsistence farmers and many of them do um have you know lose a lot of their crop to pests and diseases they can't afford the herbicides or pesticides that that u.s farmers can afford Mm -hmm. and so they just take yield losses and so this technology, which is, is embedded in the seed, in some ways doesn't need a lot of, of uh, you know, technology around it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it's, it's scale neutral, 
And so it can be used by a small-scale farmer and make a difference for a constraint that they may have. So what I always say is, you know, this technology is not a panacea. It's not going to solve every uh, agricultural constraint that farmers or that farming has. It's also not going to be a panacea to solve world hunger or food security issues. But it is a technology that can, in specific instances, in specific case-by-case basis, have an impact, an impact on farmers' lives, an impact on consumers, an impact on the environment. And so should we be able to utilize this tool where it is something that we need Mm -hmm. for those instances? And the example I might give is, you know, there's a virus uh, that's that's demolishing bananas in Uganda, and those bananas are, you know, a major staple crop in Uganda for many, many people. It's a subsistence crop, and there is no natural resistance in the banana genome mm-hmm. for that um, for that virus, and so you know, farmers are taking a huge loss, which again is impacts their livelihood and and their families. And so, you know, people are working uh, through a genetic engineered uh, solution to that, where they have found resistance and they're trying to engineer that into the crop. And so, you know, so there are instances where um, there, there could be very big impacts. What about papayas? We have papayas now, right? Thanks to genetic engineering. Well, so we had, you know, there was a, uh, that's right, there was a virus in, in Hawaii that was decimating the papaya, uh, the papaya crop in Hawaii, and because of the genetic engineered uh, papaya, we still are growing papayas in Hawaii where we might not be. They might no longer exist in Hawaii. Now there are papayas grown in Mexico and other places around the world, so we wouldn't have lost papayas, oh. but, but to oh. those farmers <laughs> and to the people who who liked and relied upon those Hawaiian papayas. Yeah. That's right. We do have something there. So um, so that's right. So in different instances, it can be very effective. And so the issue isn't, is again, not considering this as the solution to all of our agricultural woes. It clearly is not. Mm-hmm. But, but if utilized in a pinpoint manner, it can be uh, helpful. And can it be, what was, I read something about golden rice. Can it be used to kind of like increase the nutritional profile of certain crops? So golden rice is an example where it is being utilized to, uh, to introduce beta carotene, which is a precursor to vitamin A mm-hmm. in rice. Um, and there are many people in developing countries that uh, Have are, are vitamin A deficient, yeah. which leads to things like blindness. And um, and who get a majority of their calories from rice, and so if you can introduce this into rice, you can potentially have an impact on that. Um, it's still in the development stage; it's not commercial product, um, and uh, it's taken longer than people anticipated because it's you know because it is a nutritional characteristic. You have a lot of other issues, not just you know is there enough beta carotene and is it bioavailable? Will it be uh, Will it will it be uptaked by what will happen when the when the, when the rice is cooked? Will it right. still be bioavailable? Yeah. Um, will it be uptake by people who are immune deficient? Yeah. You know, have compromised systems already because they don't get enough calories, and so there's a number of issues around it that still need to be worked out. But but that is an example, and people have looked to other 
you know, fortifying other crops and doing things with genetic engineering, so, as well as gene editing. Right, and but a lot of the gene edited crops are not on the market yet. Right. Okay, similar to like the golden rice. Um, so I only have time for two more questions. Ish. Oh, um, I gotta go also. <laughs> okay, okay, sorry. Um, so I will wrap up, but just I think it needed to, wanted to mention um, genetically engineered salmon up for sale in the U.S. What's going on with this? What's wrong with it? Did you say? Oh, no, no. What's going on with this? What's going oh, on? Oh, so, so genetically engineered salmon has been something that's been developed for uh, a long time now, mm-hmm. more than a decade. And it's a, it's a salmon that has a, uh, a gene from another fish and a promoter that allows it to grow, uh, reach its uh, maturity um, size in half the time. So the normal way I understand it is normal salmon, you know, grow during the summer months and during the cold months sort of hibernate. They don't grow. Mm-hmm. And this allows them to grow all year round. And so they can reach their mature uh, size in 18 months much quicker than than other salmon would do. And so uh, that had gone through the FDA mandatory approval process, been approved, but then Senator Murkowski introduced legislation um, into, uh, uh, introduced a rider into legislation that required that that couldn't be sold in the United States until there was labeling. Ah. FDA decided on how it would be labeled. Yeah. And so recently, Within the last couple of weeks, FDA determined that uh, the USDA disclosure rule, now that it had been finalized, also covers salmon, and therefore there is now a labeling scheme in place, and the condition was met that was was put in the law by Senator Murkowski and Congress, and therefore now the giant-engineered salmon could start to be grown in the United States and then sold consumers. I have a feeling there might be continued pushback, especially from the good people of Alaska. <laughs> that's, what my... uh, that's what I've read in the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Last question. Um, what are some actions that CSPA, CSPI would like to see from the government and maybe other corporations around genetically engineered crops? So we haven't really talked a lot about the regulatory system in yes. the United States, but these crops are regulated by uh, depending on the trait and the crop and the crop and the, uh, the introduced trait, by one, two, or three agencies: FDA, USDA, and or EPA. It's a lot. Um, and <laughs> it um, seems like a lot. <laughs> the FDA regulatory process for genetic engineered crops is a voluntary consultation process. So developers of genetic engineered crops are required to come to FDA and get FDA's approval before they introduce that crop into the food supply. And so our number one, you know, priority would be to change that to a mandatory pre-market approval process. Okay. There is a pre-market approval process for jankajured animals, but not for jankajured crops. That's a separate that's issue because of the way the law is written, and the law was written well before this technology existed. Mm-hmm. Not a policy decision, but you know, our view is that that uh, there would be value to having FDA look at the safety determinations of these crops and give its own opinion about the safety of those crops before they introduce, enter, entered in the food supply. Mm-hmm. We do that not because we think any of the crops that exist today are not safe or, or have any harm, but because, you know, but to ensure safety going forward, as well as to give consumers confidence. There are a lot of consumers out there who I think question the safety of these crops and 
part of the reason for that questioning is because FDA has not played a, a very large role. Okay. How can consumers, um, what can consumers do, our listeners do, to support the work that you are doing and to get more involved? Um, you know, I guess, you know, we have a website and mm-hmm. uh, people can become members to CSPI and get our newsletter and um, you'll see lots of helpful information there. I write, I write a blog on this topic and... Um, and your blog is? Uh, there's some frequently, uh, frequently asked questions out there. And yeah. So if people are interested in nutrition issues and food safety issues and biotech issues, um, you know, feel free to go to our website, www.cspinet.org. And um, when at that website, you know, they can find a lot of information that could give, uh, bring them up to speed on this topic. Yep, and it is an invaluable resource to everybody in the food um, world. And I highly recommend to everybody listening that you should subscribe to their newsletter and check out their site. Um, you guys do really, really important uh, work, and I am so happy that you took the time to join me on the show today. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to leave it there. Um, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as to our engineer, Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they are found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and uh, leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Lee Ute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.